3042nd edition of the Athenaeum magazine, published on the 13th of February 1886, was a bumper issue for admirers of John Keats and Percy Bysshe Shelley. The latest doings of the Shelley Society were outlined by none other than William Michael Rossetti, brother of Christina and Dante Gabriel. As well as spreading the news that meetings had been moved to the second Wednesday of each month, Rossetti provided trailers of forthcoming attractions, including a performance of the Cenci and a reprint of Adonais. Nor did he neglect the opportunity for a little membership drive. The society now numbers just about a hundred members, more or less, he wrote. This is not exactly a miss, but still it is not quite right. There ought to be many more members. Now is the time for them to come forward. Plus ça change. A separate notice, beginning at the bottom of the same page, announced that Mr Buxton Foreman's unannotated edition of Shelley's poetry had been completed, with Mrs Shelley's critical and biographical notes by way of introduction. In between these newsflashes was a middle-sized request for help with Keatsian matters. I should be much obliged if anyone possessing correspondence by the late Joseph Seven likely to produce serviceable to the memoirs. Letters especially of the date circa 1817 to 1830 would communicate with me thereupon. I should also be glad to hear from owners of unpublished letters by John and George Keats and their circle of the period, comprised between the years 1815 and 1822. The author was William Sharp, who had just begun researching his life and letters of Joseph Seven, which would be published six years later in 1892. Sharp's literary personal ad ended with particular requests for assistance with Seven's and Keats' sea voyage from London to Naples in 1820. Sharp wanted to meet anyone owning sketches made by Seven on the Maria Crowther. I should also be glad to hear, he continued, from relatives of Miss Cottrell, a fellow passenger with Keats and Seven on that voyage, of Mr Cottrell, at that time a banker in Naples, and of Mrs Pigeon, also a passenger on the Maria Crowther, if they have any memoranda, journals or sketches made by one or other of those three persons during or subsequently to the confinement of the Maria Crowther in the Bay of Naples. If the insistent rhythms of Sharp's comprehensive call for papers betrays a faint hum of anxiety, then this only emphasises the importance of this particular episode to his book. Even in 1866, the Maria Crowther was already a narrative highlight of any Keats biography, a dramatic if purgatorial interlude between the main acts of the poet's life and the inferno of his final months in Rome. But in the life of Joseph Seven, it was close to being the raison de crier, uniting the painter's celebrated roles of Keats' loyal companion and the major chronicler of those melancholy final months with the life-changing period when he exchanged England for Italy. Ratcheting up the pressure on Sharp is the more or less closed system that the ship presented to the world. What went on in the Maria Crowther has more or less stayed on the Maria Crowther for the last 200 years. If it wasn't for Seven's contemporaneous letter journals and subsequent recollections, we might never have heard the names Mrs Pigeon, Miss Cottrell or her brother Charles. And even these most comprehensive of the extant accounts are regularly interrupted by bad weather, the atrocious conditions inside the cabin, by boredom, Seven's own seasickness, and eventually the overwhelming stress of Keats' illness. Pray, my dear fellow, don't ask me for journals, Seven would practically plead with William Haslam in January 1821, concluding a letter containing only miserable news about their friend's decline. Every day would it be more or less like this. The only other records of note were written by Keats himself, 
and his contribution amounts to just four letters in which the material world recedes further and further from view as his introspective suffering takes hold. When Keats mentions Miss Cottrell, he doesn't do so by name, referring to her only as a young lady. The remaining witnesses are few, fixed in number, save for quarantine in Naples, and notably stingy when it came to providing the kinds of records that Sharp so obviously craved. The added fact that almost all those associated with the Maria Crowther vanished from recorded history the moment they disembarked in Naples only confirms their spectral presences in Keats' life. I'd always thought the Maria Crowther was a good name for a ghost ship. Perhaps there was more to it than just an idle daydream. Little wonder William Sharp sounds a note of quiet desperation in the Athenaeum. What fresh information could he really hope to add? I doubt I would have ever given this predicament a second thought if I hadn't begun to research Keats' journey from England to Italy in the autumn of 2020 to mark its 200th anniversary. On the suggestion of my academic wife, I used the online platform Google Earth to retrace his steps day by day, or should that be his wake? The result was John Keats' final voyage, which almost nine months later remains a work in progress. Combining state-of-the-art satellite imaging with earthbound street mapping, Google Earth allowed me to plot Keats' course with impressive accuracy. The viewer can be whisked from Rome to London in a few seconds, and even launched into outer space from the Dorset coast to dramatise the mythic composition of Bright Star. The feature that really grabbed my imagination was the surprisingly versatile Infobox, whose fusion of word, image, sound and video turned the project into a kinetic multimedia hypertext to use the lingo. Viewers could compare a 21st century view of, say, Naples Harbour to a landscape painted two centuries before. Textually, I could summarise a day's events, quote letters, and insert links to resources outside the project, or direct the viewer to subplots within it. I could provide a soundtrack for Seven playing Haydn to Keats in Rome. I could even map Charles Brown's desperate but poignantly futile race against time from Dundee to London to bid farewell to Keats before the Maria Crowther sailed. You can even move through time as well as space. Realising that Keats' third day on the Maria Crowther, the 19th of September, marked the one-year anniversary of Two Autumn, I embedded a link that rewound back to Winchester in 1819. The challenge of pinpointing where on Google Earth Keats was each day not only cultivated a new respect for everyone on board, it elicited a growing sympathy with William Sharp and indeed anyone faced with narrating the final voyage. For the researcher, the episode seems a case of an immovable object the Maria Crowther itself, meeting an unstoppable force, Keats' story, and the pressure to say something, anything, new about it. But beneath this frustration, I could also feel the irresistible, if hubristic, temptation that I might be the one to uncover one final Keats poem, an ode to pigeons, perhaps, lurking in a shadowy attic of Mrs Pigeon's descendants. All of which might explain my outsized excitement as uncovering a very few new facts about one of the Maria Crowther's passengers, Miss Cottrell. Her basic CV, synthesised by most of her biographers, goes something like this. Miss Cottrell, aged 18, a consumptive like Keats, and also like Keats sailing to Italy to restore her health. Met in Naples by her brother Charles, she died there, according to William Sharp, some time before 1825. Her major claim to minor fame is the adverse effect her illness exercised on Keats' imagination, 
which he mentions in a letter to Mrs. Braun of the 24th of October, 1820. It has been unfortunate for me that one of the passengers is a young lady in a consumption. Her imprudence has vexed me very much. The knowledge of her complaint, the flushings in her face, all her bad symptoms have preyed upon me. Miss Cottrell's role may be small, but in other respects one could see it as personifying the nightmarish dynamics of the voyage as a whole. Joseph Seddon says as much when he uses the sharp-eyed word contrarieties. As he writes after its conclusion, but for her we should have had more heaviness, though much less trouble. In Seven's early letters, Miss Cottrell's contrarieties, her lively sweet disposition versus her frail condition, are portrayed as a kind of light-hearted balancing act. Having fainted shortly after coming on board, she inspires Keats and Seven to improvise a mock heroic love triangle as the means to cheer her up. We recovered Miss Cottrell to laugh and be herself. My wit would have dropped in a minute, but for Keats plying me. But I was done up for all that, leaving him sole master. But I struck up again in my own language, or Keats would have borne the lady off in triumph. We could read this as an example of what Amy Lowell calls the curious tone of lightness and banality that pervades Seven's first communications. For my part, I find the performance of joyful normality by two young men and one young woman deeply moving. Less a misreading of the abnormally woebegone circumstances, a more a defiant challenge to them. The upbeat, if competitive mood, seeps into the following day, when Miss Cottrell and Keats bicker in seemingly jokey rivalry about their respective ailments. She insists on being better than Keats, and Keats feels she is certainly worse than himself. Whether this carefree mood existed in reality, or only in the wit of Seven's prose, it is quickly eroded by the grim realities of the voyage. Miss Cottrell and Keats may have shared the same disease, but the contrarieties of their respective requirements were frequently incompatible and even mutually destructive. If the cabin windows were not open, Seven writes, she would faint and remain entirely insensible five or six hours together. If the windows were open, poor Keats would be taken with a cough, a violent one caught from this cause, and sometimes spitting of blood. We lose sight of Miss Cottrell upon arrival in Naples, displaced in Seven's letters by her brother Charles, who joins the Maria Crowther during its ten-day quarantine in the bay. A one-time purser in the Royal Navy, Cottrell took up residence in Naples and went into business with William Igledon, primarily as a banker, but with a more appetising sideline in selling wine. The comfortable reading room annexed to the bank was, according to travel writer Mariana Stark, furnished with newspapers from England and elsewhere, and attracted many English visitors. Indeed, Keats was not the last great English writer Cottrell met in the city. In 1845, he struck up an acquaintance with Charles Dickens during the journey that would be later recorded in Pictures from Italy in 1846. They got on well enough for Dickens to still be writing to Cottrell five years later, in December 1850, and to refer to him as our common friend, the banker in Charger, in another letter to John Adujo. It is presumably Charles who tells Seven, three days before Keats' death in February 1821, that Miss Cottrell is now, poor creature, dying in the same way as Keats. Eighteen months later, it is also Charles that informs him about her own death, during Seven's visit to Naples in 1822. Seven records the sad news in a letter to his own brother, Thomas, of the 5th of July. At present I am living in the house of a kind Englishman, Charles Cottrell, whose sister came with us from England. She died soon after poor Keats of consumption. 
Her brother thinks that he can never repay me enough for my attentions to her, so he makes open house to me whenever I may like to come to Naples. We can now add a little more detail to her story. Her full name is Maria Cottrell. She was 19 when she met Keats in Seven, and she died in Naples just over five months after Keats, on the 15th of July, 1821, aged just 20 years old. You can read more about the search for Miss Cottrell in my essay for the Keats Shelley Review, but suffice to say the key was technology. Whereas Sharp had relied on the readership of the Athenaeum, I had the internet and its seemingly endless supply of genealogical websites. Wikitree allowed me to find Charles Cottrell's christening in Southampton in 1793, Family search revealed his parents to be Charles and Elizabeth Cottrell. A search or two more, and there she was, as if by magic. Maria Cottrell, christened 14th of March, 1801, which added a year to her usually quoted age. At this stage, I hadn't read Joseph Seven's letter, revealing that Maria had died in Naples not long after Keats, which meant a little trial and error on my part, or a lot of trial and error. The biggest stroke of online archival luck, though, was the existence of death records for Naples, dating as far back as 1809, found again via family search, and which, unlike their Anglo counterparts, didn't demand payment for the chance to peruse the originals. Eventually, I hit upon the State Archive of Civil Registration for Naples. The search term Maria Cottrell, slightly to my astonishment, brought up 25 results, including tantalising entries for Maria Rosa Cutarelli and Maria Cutralo. I thought I'd found her when I saw Maria Anna Corticelli, and there suddenly, there she was again, in San Fernandino's death records, Morti, for 1821. Maria Cotterelli, birth, 1801, Inghilterra. Father, Carlo, the date of death, the 15th of July, 1821. I freely confess it brought tears to my eyes, and again when I saw a digital reproduction of Maria's death record, I thought a lot about why I found the moment so moving. Tiredness played a part, as did the tiresome, eye-watering nature of online searches, made all the more tiring and tiresome by 2020's lengthy lockdowns. But there was excitement too, and probably a little ego at finding details that had eluded so many great researchers for almost two centuries. At the same time, I couldn't help but ask, what difference did they make? I knew three facts were not nearly enough to give 19-year-old Maria Cottrell genuine substance. I didn't know her any better because of them, and nor did they threaten to elevate her above a footnote in Keats' life. Having chewed it over, I think there are two possible answers. The first is the sheer relief of finding even the smallest bit of firm data in a story that swims before the eyes. The basic plot of the Maria Crowther may seem a fairly straightforward case of getting from A to B, or London to Naples, but its exact shape shifts constantly beneath layer upon layer of distorting narrative interpretations. This can make you doubt even the most established fact. For example, which side of the Thames did the Maria Crowther depart from on the 17th of September, 1820? Almost every biographer states the Tower Wharf, except that Edward Hyder Rollins, the editor of Keats' Letters, prefers the London docks a little further east. Sheila Birkenhead, in her biography of Seven Against Oblivion, transplants the action onto the opposite side of the river entirely. 
After leaving the family home in Mason's Yard, North London, Severn and his brother Thomas crossed the Thames and drew up by the docks on the south side of the river. Birkenhead was probably drawing on Severn's wobbly late memoir, My Tedious Life, in which he writes that he met Keats on the southward bank of the Thames, an unhelpful ambiguity that the Oxford English Dictionary suggests could mean facing towards the south, i.e. the north bank, or situated in the south, i.e. the south. It is quite possible this is an example of fading memory warping the truth. Only a few words later, Seven mistakenly recalls that Charles Brown was present that day. This crash course and the challenges facing the Keats Seven biographer sharpen my respect for anyone who had tried to solve just this sort of conundrum, only on a far larger scale. Can one be accurate, entertaining and innovative about everything from Keats' birth to his death, including the fact that both of these dates are also open to discussion. A second possible reason for my tears was a growing sympathy and even a kind of protectiveness for Miss Cottrell herself. Again, I doubt I would have given her a second thought if it hadn't been for the Google Earth project, but now I began to wonder about her treatment by posterity. Take the seemingly positive, if superficial, example of her good looks. It's become de rigueur for biographers to call Miss Cottrell pretty, often in conjunction with young. Sidney Colvin, Betty Asquith, Eileen Ward, Robert Gittings, Andrew Motion and Nicholas Rowe all use the word. This may well have been the case, something suggested by Seven chivalrous and on that first night mildly flirtatious attentiveness to her. Nevertheless, the actual basis of Miss Cottrell's good looks and textual fact is not so clear-cut. Seven himself never describes her in these terms, preferring sweet, although he does employ the related, the ladies are the quintessence of good nature and prettiness. Ladies here refers to both Miss Cottrell and Mrs Pigeon. Perhaps biographers hear a silent respectively at the end of the sentence. After all, Seven applies the epithet good nature to Mrs Pigeon in an earlier instalment. Or is he perhaps applying both adjectives to both ladies? Is this another example of Seven's good-natured hyperbole as a correspondent, as the rather whipped-up quintessence might suggest? This amplifying levity was in part an extension of Seven's own natural high spirits, which in the first days of the voyage were themselves enhanced by relief after a dismal departure from his family, by the sense of maritime adventure, and perhaps by a little naivety about the seriousness of Keats' condition. If you need an example of Seven's mannered but entertaining prose, then perhaps this description of incipient seasickness will do the trick. I'm pumping away, all the circumbendibuses of my craw are in motion, and my breakfast is a matter just come to light. From the seven it has gone to some salmon. This relentless buoyancy was also intended for the benefit of his readers. Whether or not Seven had an inkling of the torments that lay ahead, his levity seeks to reassure William Haslam, the letter's primary addressee, that they'd made a good start, and perhaps by implication that Seven was the right man for the job. If these realities offer some justification for the liberties Joseph Seven took with Miss Cottrell, what should we make of those taken by Sheila Birkenhead in both her biographies of the painter Against Oblivion, 1943, and Illustrious Friends, 1965? Pretty is also Birkenhead's mot juste for Miss Cottrell. She also subscribes to Young, but she doesn't stop there. Miss Cottrell was young and pretty and fair-haired, with a gentle expression and manner, and Birkenhead still isn't done. Thrusting the reader into Seven's unattributed thoughts, she adds that Miss Cottrell has a beautiful complexion. 
but even these embellishments pale when compared to the arrival of the pretty and young and fair-haired woman with a gentle expression and beautiful complexion onto the Maria Crowther itself. It was a lady who stood on the deck. She was wrapped in a cloak and her face was shadowed by the hood. She took a step and then faltered and almost fell. Keats and Captain Walsh assisted her down to the cabin. Joseph remained on deck, content to leave the doctoring to Keats. In Birkenhead's recasting, Miss Cottrell doesn't board the ship from Gravesend so much as steps straight from the pages of a Gothic novel. Quite how this Otrantwish entrance was extrapolated from Seven's Spartan original might raise an eyebrow or two. The other lady passenger arrives soon after, a Miss Cottrell, very ladylike. Perhaps that light-hearted scene of mild, knowing flirtation between Keats, Seven and Miss Cottrell inspired Birkenhead's dream of a romantic heroine. Perhaps her access to Seven family records and information means she simply knows something the rest of us don't. At least Birkenhead's histrionics want Miss Cottrell to pop off the page in attractive and memorable fashion. One might even trace her fusion of fact and fiction as harking back to an older narrative tradition, to the sort of history book Jane Austen sends up in Northanger Abbey. Miss Cottrell fares rather worse in a second example of biographical pass the parcel. Andrew Motion, in his biography of Keats, brands Miss Cottrell as tactless for asking, as she boards the Maria Crowther, which one of Keats and Seven is the dying man? Keats was wounded, Motion adds gravely. In fact, it is Motion that displays a want of tact, pointing the finger at the wrong person. The error is ironically apt, not only because the anecdote concerns mistaken identities, Keats and Sevens, but because it neatly completes a chain of misreadings. The quote Motion brings as evidence against Miss Cottrell suggests his source was Walter Jackson Bates' 1966 biography in which Miss Cottrell is also blamed. The quote that Bates brings in evidence suggests his source was William Sharp, whose own source is Seven's original account. Confused? Here we go then. Here is version number one in Seven's 1873 memoir, My Tedious Life. I could not have made much of a figure for a lady visitor before we left, inquired which was the dying man. I was suffering at the time from a liver complaint, and I was very pale and wan. This seems pretty clear. A lady visitor before we left distinguishes the tactless questioner from both Mrs Pigeon and Miss Cottrell, who were mentioned by name only a sentence or two before. It would have helped if Seven had specified whether the question was asked at Tower Wharf or Gravesend. If it was Tower Wharf, then Miss Cottrell couldn't possibly have been the culprit, something that might have inspired Sheila Birkenhead to blame Mrs Pigeon, who at least was in both places. Nor, we should stress, does Seven say anything about Keats being wounded, or even that he heard the comment. If anything, Seven laughs off the episode as a joke at his own expense. I could not have made much of a figure. Dot, dot, dot. Sharp is even more definite. Before we left Gravesend, he writes in Seven's voice, a lady friend of one of those on board looked hesitatingly at Keats and myself and asked which was the dying man. It is the addition of that hesitatingly, not present in Seven, that identifies Sharp as Bates' source, and in true line-of-duty fashion, definitely links Bates to motion. It also lays the misinterpretation at Bates' door. Her, Miss Cottrell's opening question, was a shock. Was it? Says who? Was Walter Jackson Bates at Gravesend that day? At least he approved Miss Cottrell's remarkable courage and explained her outspoken inquiry as a result of her serious illness. 
Motion offers no such mitigation in his misidentification. There is one other potential explanation, and that is both Motion and Bate were influenced by Keats' unflattering assessment of Miss Cottrell in that letter to Mrs Braun of the 24th of October. It has been unfortunate for me that one of the passengers is a young lady in a consumption. Her imprudence has vexed me very much. The knowledge of her complaint, the flushings in her face, all her bad symptoms have preyed upon me. Keats' empathetic imagination was helpless in the face of illness at the best of times, and suggests that quitting medicine was as much an act of self-preservation as poetic ambition. That Keats supported Miss Cottrell throughout the voyage is attested to by both Seven's letters and Charles Cottrell's gratitude. Nevertheless, imprudence is a pointed choice of word, one whose note of condescending criticism seems unnecessarily harsh, given the unnecessarily harsh circumstances. It is also uncharacteristically unsympathetic, and even unkind. In the letter, at least, Miss Cottrell's bad symptoms exist only in so much as they prey upon him, another striking word that whispers of a premeditated attack. Was Miss Cottrell any more imprudent than Keats himself? Was Keats ventriloquising his own mixed feelings about embarking on this Hail Mary mission to Italy? Imprudence was the criticism Keats aimed at himself when explaining the famous first coughing of blood on the 3rd of February, 1820. From imprudently leaving off my greatcoat in the thaw, I caught a cold which flew to my lungs. Or was this jaded snapshot of the pretty, young, fair-haired woman with a gentle expression and beautiful complexion, determined by the potentially discomforting fact that he was writing to Fanny Braun's mother. I completely understand how all this speculation could easily be confused with fruitless nitpicking. Perhaps bait and motion are correct. Perhaps Miss Cottrell was imprudent and vexing. Perhaps she did ask that tactless question on the 18th of September, 1820. After all, Seven did recollect the anecdote over half a century after the event. I also understand that Bait and Motion are not writing biographies of Miriam Cottrell. Their misreadings don't distort their presentation of a poem or a turning point in Keats' life. And in books as vast as theirs, one or two errors or misinterpretations are inevitable, especially where matters of trivial detail are concerned. But trivial to who, exactly? Andrew Motion and Walter Jackson Bait, perhaps. And in all probability to me when I first read their biographies. But would they be trivial to Maria Cottrell herself? Their rather slapdash treatment made me consider what a strange fate it must be to have your character preserved because of a fleeting cameo appearance in another so-called great life. Miss Cottrell's walk-on part in John Keats' existence is just large enough to guarantee her a sentence or two in any biography of the poet. At the same time, she is not so prominent that she'll be read with the same scholarly seriousness or attention as, say, Benjamin Hayden or William Hazlitt, or even Isabella Jones. The image of a fly preserved in amber came immediately to mind, except that the fly was more stable and treated with greater prudence. Earlier I asked, what difference do these three new facts make to our knowledge of Miss Cottrell? My answer then was essentially not a lot, but facts are not the only truths revealed by researching her 51-day acquaintance with John Keats. I may not have learned anything fresh or concrete about Miss Cottrell's attitude to her fellow passengers, whether she read Ode to a Nightingale, or whether, as Sharp suggests, she really did spare Keats a second thought after he left Naples on the 8th of November. But the sheer amount of time spent in her posthumous company has encouraged me to think about Maria Cottrell 
for something other than the bittiest of bit-part players in the drama of the poet's final voyage. In this context, the facts of her name, christening and death were simply the outcomes of a deeper and more valuable imaginative process. What if we were to consider Miss Cottrell as the heroine in her own story, not as a kind of Emily St. Aubert staggering palely onto the Maria Crowther, and not as a pretty, disposable appendage to our tragic dying genius? What if she was, however briefly and however sketchily, the centre of attention, as she would have been for Charles Cottrell and the rest of her family? What if she were Maria Cottrell, a very young woman, younger than Keats, who was very seriously ill, certainly as ill as Keats, and in all likelihood very seriously frightened, as frightened as Keats. Like him, she was stuffed into a cramped, uncomfortable ship filled with strangers, one of whom reflected her own bad symptoms. She was beset by atrocious weather and headed for a strange city and a future that was uncertain at best. And unlike Keats, Maria Cottrell was doing it all by herself. If Mrs Pigeon really was her companion or chaperone, as Andrew Motion has also hypothesised, again without decisive evidence, then she might as well have stayed in London for all the good she did her charge. Seven describes her as a most consummate brute. She would see Miss Cottrell stiffened like a corpse, for I have sometimes thought her dead, nor ever lent her the least aid. True, Maria did have a brother waiting to greet her in Italy, and a brother who loved her enough to brave quarantine, but she couldn't have seen Charles Cottrell all that often in recent years. Instead of thinking what impact Maria's illness had upon Keats, we might ponder what she might have felt trapped in those stifling, miserable confines and forced to witness his misery and blood-spitting and growing despair. We might also conclude that the trouble both Keats and Seven took when caring for her confirms Maria's personal courage and dignity. Loitering here, I think, is the best explanation for my tearful reaction on finding traces of Maria Cottrell during her own final voyage. Excavating these three small facts felt like a corrective to the ghostly afterlife imagined for her in different ways by Sharp, Miss Cottrell was a mere shadow, then by Birkenhead, and confirmed by some of Keats' finest biographers. Walter Jackson Bates' rather startling adjective for her is wraith-like. My intention here is not to make a case for a monograph speculating upon every one of John Keats' minor acquaintance. Instead, during this period of Keats Shelley 200 commemorations, I hope posterity will spare Maria Cottrell a thought on the 15th of July. After all, 2021 is her bicentenary too. Finding her name and the dates of her christening and death are not in the greater scheme of things all that much, but it was the least I could do in the circumstances. to this podcast brought to you by the Keats Shelley House and the Keats Shelley Memorial Association. You can find out more about the Keats Shelley House, including our history, collections and Keats Shelley 200 Bicentenary at ksh.roma.it. For news about 2021's Keats Shelley and Young Romantics Poetry and Essay Prizes, visit keatsshelley.org and click Prizes. To support the museum by becoming a friend or making a donation, stay at keatsshelley.org and click Support Us. This episode was written and presented by James Kidd. The music is Androids Always Escape by Chris Zabriskie. Visit chriszabriskie.com.